Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, mother? What's the secret? Dragoon by Dwayne Hayes. Is it time, Granny? No, child, it ain't time. You stop you worrying now. You just lay there with your eyes closed. She said this with her back to the boy, her gaze fixed out of the window of the cabin. The smoke from the fireplace had grown thick in the room, the result of a stone chimney in dire need of brushing out. She was in no condition to do such work. Each night a little more soot, creosote, built up inside the chimney, and a little more smoke permeated the cabin. It's hard to breathe, Granny. You want to freeze, boy? Because I can make it so you can breathe clear, but you're sure enough going to freeze to death. You can't have it both ways. As soon as she said it, she felt small enough to crawl into her own shoe. He didn't deserve that kind of cruelty, being sick and all. Her nerves were simply worn bare. I'm sorry, child. You know Granny don't mean it. His response was a shallow cough. Is it time, Granny? She wasn't the only grandmother raising a child since the war broke out. Not by far. Northwest Arkansas was always like a different country. The Highlands. Union loyalties ran deep in these parts. Always did. And since Pea Ridge in the spring, this part of the state and most of the Missouri could breathe easier. Rebs held tight in the flat lands from Little Rock on down to the cotton fields of the Delta, but in the mountain country, the war was all but done now, after only a little more than a year's hostilities. Hostility means more than musket balls flying, though, and security didn't mean stew on the stove or corn in the crib before the first frost. In that respect, it was still every man for himself. And in most cases, as with most wars, the men were nowhere to be found. It was the women who had to make do. I don't feel good, Granny. I know, boy, I know. It's the fever. You got a fire burning in you that ain't yet been snuffed out. She took the damp rag she'd had on his head and dunked it in the bucket of water by the pallet she'd laid for him on the floor. An old feather bed. How a body could be burning up inside but shivering all over seemed a cruel joke, especially as the wind howled so loudly that the shutters on the windows threatened to break off their hinges. That wind is a tauntin' us, ain't it? she said under her breath. She looked at him adoringly, but then the hint of a smile she displayed faded, and her gaze went through him, far beyond the boy lying on the feather mattress before her. She became lost in the stare. Suddenly she caught herself. She lifted her weary bones from the floor with a groan and scuttled back to the window. She picked up the Colt's Dragoon from where she'd left it on the chest of drawers, its heavy steel frame having grown colder just in the few moments it had been out of her hand. It was the only firearm the family owned now, her son, the boy's father having accepted it in trade for a Tennessee walking horse he'd accepted in trade from someone else the year before. When he left to join Curtis's troops in Rolla, he took his rifle, leaving the colt with his mother and wife. He was better off than most. 
Stories added that most of the boys joining up from Arkansas didn't have shoes, much less a decent long gun. The Colt was heavy, though, meant to be a horse pistol. Too heavy for a frail woman of 82 to be wielding. Bud, in its weight, felt some sense of security. And in its coldness lay its strength. This thing don't think. It just does what has to be done, she thought to herself. Could she be so strong, she wondered. Is it time yet, Granny? She thought of the boy's mother, how she could still smell the perfume the girl used to wear, even now that the cabin reeked of soot, sickness, and the acrid smoke from wet wood. She remembered the day word came that the boy's father had died at Pea Ridge. The girl ran off into the woods for hours. Finally, the old woman and the boy had to go look for her, the boy, unaware of the news. He still didn't know his daddy was dead. He knew about his mama, though. He'd seen that firsthand. Is it here yet, Granny? He didn't seem to know what he was saying. She walked to the other window. It was the same view, but traveling the distance at least made her feel like she was accomplishing something. She leaned against the windowsill and stared into the night. The full moon lit the snow, making a false daylight that gave her little comfort. I don't need the sun to know what's coming, she thought. The boy coughed feebly. She went to him and wrung out the rag. You know your granny loves you, don't you, child? Tell me you know that. I know, granny. He opened his eyes, which squinted from even the dim light of the fire. Is it time? No, child, not yet. But you don't worry now. Granny won't let it get you. You know Granny wouldn't lie to you, don't you? You and me is all we got, boy. You and Granny. I know, Granny. Just tell me when it's time. I want to know. The old woman put the rag back on the boy's head and rubbed her hand down his bare chest. The thin skin of her palm was soft. He used to marvel at how someone so old, who worked so hard all her life, could have hands as soft as a baby's, hands as soft as his. The skin was paper-thin, though, and she felt the heat in him so much it almost made her pull away, but she would not. He needed the touch of love only she could give him. When she started to pull away to return to the window, he grabbed her arm. Will you keep it there, Granny? I'm hurting now. She bristled inside. She knew she needed to be at the window to stand guard, but how could she deny him this request? All right, son. Granny's here. She looked across the small room at the window. She looked across the small room at the window and at the dragoon laying there on the chest of drawers, out of reach. An inch is as good as a mile, she thought. As she sat on the floor, her hands steadfast on his chest, even after her arm had started to fall asleep, her mind wandered. What did we do to deserve this? What did he do to deserve this? He's just a baby. He still has some of his baby teeth, for God's sake. But she knew God had nothing to do with it. The boy was asleep now and started to turn over onto his side. Finally, she felt comfortable taking her hand, now pins and needles, off him. She squeezed it with her other hand, 
trying to massage some blood back into it as it throbbed. It was so cold, it felt like it didn't belong to her. As she stood, she groaned as quietly as she could so as not to wake him. Returning to her place at the window, she resumed watch. Her hand, which had just caressed the boy's chest, now unconsciously caressed the pistol in a similar way. She stared at it now, imagining how the hammer would strike the percussion cap, sending a spark into the powder and the hell that would follow. The hell. She wondered if she was as strong as all that. Suddenly, something caught her eye in the pasture. Light. Had the snow not shone so brightly in the reflected moonlight, she'd have seen it sooner. But she was seeing it now, sure enough. There was light coming over the hill. The boy rolled over. Granny, he queried, still half asleep. She glanced back at him nervously. It was here. Granny, I, I feel real bad, he moaned, his voice hoarse and weak. She understood. She stared at the faint trace of light, like the coming of dawn on the horizon. Only she knew this light brought no salvation, no new day. She knew this light was evil. Granny, he yelled, his voice now breaking with pain. She smelled something. She knew he'd soiled himself. He was writhing now. She saw the sweat roll from his chest and drip on the feather mattress. She could see the wet stain creeping out from his indentation, sweat mixed with urine. She was sweating too now, though she felt as lifeless and cold as the dragoon. Granny! This time his yell was plaintive, like he was crying out for strength or comfort. She stared intently at the light as it grew more distinct coming over the hill. It was at the fence now, just over the peak. Soon it would be more than light. Soon it would be a presence. She knew time was running out. I won't let it get you, son. But the words barely made it over her lips. Her breath was weak and shallow. She said it again, louder this time, though each syllable quivered. I, I, I won't let it get you, son. Granny's right here. Granny! He was yelling again, this time in pure pain. Or was it anger? She looked back at him. The click of the hammer on the dragoon startled her. She didn't expect that sound. She didn't even realize she had started to cock the hammer, but there it was. She knew it had to be cocked back three full clicks to be ready to fire. That's one, she thought. She started to walk towards the boy, but stopped short. She couldn't leave the window that long. He was turning now in the mattress, eyes closed, sweat drenched his bedding, writhing. He was turning. She rushed back to the window. God, please give me strength. Help me. The light broke. It was real. Until she saw this, she could hope it was some trick of the moonlight. But now, there was no question. It was real. And it was here. 
The boy moaned in a ghastly, inhuman bellow. It was not human, and she knew it. At first, she thought she'd cocked the hammer back again, surprised by another snapping sound. But it was not the dragoon, it was the boy's vertebra. As muscle spasms contorted his slight frame into forms reconfiguring his fragile skeleton, his scream caused tears to flood her weathered, deeply lined cheeks. She hollered at the sound of his pain. Hers was just as real. He'd rolled over now, his back muscles taut, and his flesh stretched to the point of near tearing. His moans were so loud she wanted to cover her ears and run from the cabin. For a moment, she looked at the pistol and realized how easy it would be to turn it on herself, but she quickly squeezed her eyelids shut tight to wring the tears from her eyes. When she opened them, she was as cold as a dragoon. She had become the dragoon. Her hands still aching of pins and needles, she lifted the heavy pistol. The further it traveled from her side, its awkward barrel-heavy imbalance caused her hand to shake violently. She employed her left hand for support. She leveled the barrel on the boy, but her shaking was still not dampened enough. Now her body was trembling as well. She glanced outside and saw the light was no longer one, but many. She turned back to the boy. She kneeled down beside the chest of drawers. Her tears flowed freely again. She remembered the day her son had brought the piece of furniture from town and how her daughter-in-law had been so excited she cried. It was an anniversary present. She could hear sounds from the yard now, horrible sounds. She braced herself against the chest of drawers. She laid the heavy dragoon on top of it, where they used to sit the roast while her son would carve it, and she steadied her arms, clenching the pistol tightly in her still numb hand. Using both thumbs, she cocked the hammer one more time, then another, that made it three. The dragoon was alive now, breathing. She heard a noise on the side of the house, then another at the door. Something was rubbing against the house, rubbing and scratching. She gave herself one last moment to look at the boy, her precious grandson. She wanted to tell him that she loved him, but it was too late for that, and she knew that if she said this, her resolve would crumble. Her eyes widened like the pall of death had entered her body. It had. She said under her breath, No, and pulled the trigger. The men in the yard grew silent, the dragoon's roar echoed through the mountains as the night became deathly still. They looked at each other, but no one moved for several minutes. When she opened the door, her heavy cotton dress was smeared with blood. She stepped out of the house, looking at no one in particular. She just stood there. She wiped her hand across her dress and held it out before her. Is this what you come here for? Sarah Gorby, the man said. 
You know why we come here. That boy's touched by the beast that killed his ma. His words were cut by the sound of the dragoon hitting the hard snow-covered ground. The men's eyes fell on the outline of it by her boot in the snow. Though it was no longer visible, its imprint was unmistakable as smoke still seeped from its barrel. You're not needed here, she said. I've done it myself. This family's seen enough death at the hands of fools and cowards. Tears dripped from her cheek and left their own imprints in the snow, these more fragile, unnoticed. She did it, man's voice boomed behind her. In her weary state, she'd not seen anyone go inside. As he walked past her to join the others, he touched her arms softly. She didn't notice. Without so much as a word, the men looked at each other and started to gather into a group. Three of them came from round the back of the cabin, buckets of coal oil still dripping, almost empty. They'd meant to light the house afire and were but seconds from touching flame to wood, but now there was no need. Their work here was finished. The men stood facing Sarah. It was all they could do. They were old themselves, too old to fight in the war anyway. Most had children of their own, grandchildren, so they recognized the horror of this night. Sarah still could not look at them, and they made no attempt to speak to her. They simply turned and walked away, their torches flickering against the snow, their light leaving just as it had come. Sarah stood in the moonlight, alone in the yard. As the men walked, several turned round when they heard the door to the cabin shut quietly, almost gently. As they passed over the hill, their light touched the cabin no more. The men walked in silence. There was nothing that could be said. As they crossed the mill bridge, Juan stopped and looked back. There was a light coming from behind the hill now, diffuse but rapidly growing more intense, like the coming of dawn on the horizon. A thick column of black smoke rose up like a pike, piercing the moon that held sway over the night. Some of the men stopped to look on, while others marched ahead silently, only wanting to put this night behind them. Okay, Dwayne, so we've just heard your story, Dragoon, and um, just to get us started, I'd like just you to tell me something about yourself, you know, uh, where you're from, where are you now, what do you do? Sure, sure. Well, first of all, Tony, it's an absolute pleasure to join you. I've, I've become such a fan of your work and your channel over the last year or so that um, it's a real honor to be part of this collection that you're curating. As far as me, I would say that at best, I'm an amateur writer of fiction. My career has actually been spent as a speechwriter. So that started in politics back in my home state, which as you can 
So you can probably guess is Arkansas. Well, Arkansas is mentioned in the in the story, isn't it? And then there's the the accent, which I find very very pleasant. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. I, I was reading a book by Sam Leith about rhetoric. I think that the the British title is "Are You Talking to Me," but the American title was something like "Words as Loaded Weapons" or something like that, which was much better. Speech writing's been a big deal ever since the Romans. And I hadn't actually realized until I read that book that it's still a big deal and people are paid. So you, you've worked with words professionally for a long time, I think. Yeah. And speech writing is a fun, a fun, interesting way to, to make a living. My, I'm always fascinated when, when I read books that talk about the sort of the classical analysis of speech writing, because I have a I don't know if this is a fringe notion, but my thought is if you took the collected wisdom of people like Aristotle or Cicero, and then you compare that with speeches of people like Churchill or Lincoln or Martin Luther King, for instance, you know, they're using all the classical rhetorical devices, but they're just doing so absolutely naturally. They're not, you know, I'm sure that somebody like Churchill understood concepts like ethos and pathos and logos, but they, they just do this stuff naturally because they're natural born storytellers. And I tend to think that all good speechwriters probably do that. I'm really interested in this. So uh, I do think that's right, but you know how tennis players and golfers and fighter pilots look really easy, natural, as if it's the most easy thing in the world to do what they do. But there's been a lot of learning going on to get them to yeah. that point a lot of practice as well for sure sure they must have a, a love of words i reckon churchill and those people yeah. you mentioned yeah must have been in love with words anyway to be able to to, to make them so musical and persuasive yeah I, I agree and i think what i always struggle with is how do you how do you teach speech writing because i i feel like if you you could for instance start with the concepts and teach somebody the concepts but if you tried to tailor a speech to concepts, I don't think it would work as well. I think in speech writing, we just tend to see people who, who have a natural ability to, to tell a story or to communicate. You know, I even, being an, also an amateur musician, I compare it to the Beatles. You know, if you, if you looked at Paul McCartney or John Lennon or George Harrison, none of these guys could read a note of music if you showed it to them. And they, they didn't. They weren't trained in, in classical musical theory, but they had been music fans their entire life. And they probably started writing songs, sort of emulating their heroes. And, and then at some point, you, you start to innovate and do your own thing. So I think if, if they had, uh, you know, I wonder how, how, what sort of songwriters they would have been if they had first been educated in classical theory maybe not as good maybe not as good you know then you're trying to write to theory versus you know my notion was always that that the the theoretical deconstruction of of speech writing came after the fact in other words people like aristotle and cicero were they were deconstructing speeches that people were already giving and saying here's why these speeches are effective Here's the, the machinery at work behind why these things are effective, sort of like analyzing a sentence structure, diagramming a sentence or something. 
you know, it's more of a, an after the fact analysis than a beforehand blueprint. If that, if that makes sense, at least that's my notion. I, I think you're probably right. And there's, a, there's an analogy really in my own profession, my proper job, which is nursing, you know, and you can, and I've seen lots of students come up who knew the theory, but actually when they were with the people, because and particularly mental health nursing, it's very much about personal interactions and they've just no good. You know, they, they were great on paper. They knew the theory, but actually when it, and, and, and the other flip round of that is of people who couldn't write a, an essay or a, a paper about what they're doing, but they were fantastic, calming, agitated people down and making people feel at ease and things like that. Yeah. So I think it, there's a lot of natural gift there. I, I wanted to ask you how come, because it is a fairly unusual profession. How come you ended up being a speechwriter? You know, I don't think anybody really sets out to be a speechwriter. In other words, there's not there's not a, a prescribed um, curriculum that one would follow. I think if you want to be a speechwriter, just about every speechwriter I know sort of backed into it accidentally, and that was certainly the case with me. I was working for a for a politician. I was working for the governor of the state of Arkansas. And I was doing as part of a of a different job, I was doing constituent services for for the governor. And in the course of that, I was doing a lot of correspondence for him on his behalf. And I think he saw the way that I that I wrote letters and he said, have you ever written speeches? And of course, I hadn't. So I said, would you like to try? And I said, absolutely. And being a being a lifelong fan of politics, I, I jumped at that because that is one of the jobs in politics that people really are drawn to is, is speech writing, because that's where you can sort of play a small part in shaping public policy. So I jumped on it that way. But I think everybody, the, the catch 22 with speech writing is that it's very hard to get your foot in the door because nobody wants to, to take a chance on you writing a speech for them until you've proven that you can write speeches for someone. So it's very hard to get that first client or 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 employer to say go ahead and write a speech so almost like trying to get into acting or trying to get into any other thing you you really you it's a catch-22 because you need you need something to show that you can do it before you're allowed to even try in a lot of cases yeah people don't want to take a risk that you're going to write them a speech that gets them uh, unelected you know or have tomatoes thrown yeah yeah especially in politics or really in, in the corporate world too, the stakes can be frighteningly high with, um, with speech writing because, you know, and especially if you're, if you're using data and statistics and stuff like that, you've got to check and double check and triple check. Cause you just, you could really have a speech blow up in your face. And so it's a, it's a, there's a lot of pressure involved at, at a certain point with depending on the level at which the speech is being given. but. I'm not trying to make it sound like more than it is. It's a lot of fun because if you if you love to write, I think it's almost in some way like being a playwright. You know, you, you write a speech and then you get this strange sort of surreal experience of watching it being delivered by a professional who really knows how to deliver a speech. And there's a certain thrill that comes along with that 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 it's hard to recreate in other forms of writing, but, but it's, it's, it's been a really fun way to make a, make a living. Yeah, it must be like being a playwright where, you, you know, you write the words and then somebody else stands up and, and interprets them 
inevitably they put their own spin on it. And I know that when I, well, we, we're going to talk about this, but when I read your story or when I read anybody's story, it, it must be strange because I'm, I'm inevitably in, interpreting it in, in my own way, you know. I was going to say, but before we leave the speech writing, so that was in Arkansas, but where are you now? So currently, for the last five years, I've been writing speeches for the executives of a large energy company in Saudi Arabia. So I've been very fortunate that I went from Arkansas to, to the state of Arizona to work in a corporate job. And then I went to, to New England, which, which we can get to because that's what got me into to fiction writing or creative writing. Then I got a corporate job in Amsterdam, speech writing, and then here to Saudi Arabia. So I've had the, the rare experience of having a, a lot of diversity to the geographically as a speechwriter, but also in the different sort of strains of speechwriting. We, t- we tend to think of speechwriting in terms of it's either political, corporate, or academic writing for university presidents and that sort of thing. So I've been fortunate that I've been able to do, to do all three legs of that stool, as it were. But yeah, for the last five years in, in, in the Middle East, which is, a, which is an experience all of its own and has been very interesting. I bet it has, yeah. So... Obviously, you you write fiction as well, and you're going to say something about how you got into that when you were in New England. Yeah, Tony, the uh, my entree into fiction writing in in 2010, um, which is hard for me to believe is a decade ago now. But I took a sort of a a mid I viewed it as a mid career sabbatical, and I, I learned about a, a really interesting creative writing master's program at Dartmouth College, which is in, which is in um, Hanover, New Hampshire, up in, in the New England region of the United States. And so it just sounded like so much fun. I, I up sticks and, and moved to New England, supposed to be a year-long program. I wound up dragging it out over two years just because I was having so much fun. And so my, my focused on, on creative fiction and so this story, Dragoon, was part of a uh, handful of stories that, as I recall, I didn't write Dragoon for a class, but I think I wrote it in parallel, sort of just for myself. But it was, it was a handful of stories and, and longer pieces that I wrote as part of that master's degree. I must admit, I had to look up what a Dragoon was. Uh, initially, when I was reading it, I thought, well, is this, you know, like a Dragoon being a mounted soldier, a mounted infantry? And I thought, is this a dead soldier lying there? But then I realized on a little bit of Google helped me realize that it's a Colt Dragoon revolver. Yeah. Yeah. But the Dragoon was never intended to be like a, a pistol that, that somebody would wear on their hip because it was a it was a it was about four pounds and some odd ounces. It's a very heavy, sort of front heavy pistol. So it was intended to be mounted on a for a for a, a cavalry soldier, a horse mounted soldier. A dragoon was intended to be mounted on the saddle as a sort of a second line firearm after the rifle is discharged. You've got this big pistol that you can wield, but it was never intended to be carried by someone. So to me, that the contrast of this massively heavy, unwieldy pistol with a little old lady in her 80s made it an even more sort of formidable thing, you know, as opposed to something that could have been disregarded. This was something that, you know, would it would would have taken her two hands to even pick up. So 
and also because maybe because of its presence it, it almost it is like a character in the story it lur it lingers and lurks in that room and, and full of foreboding about what it's going to be used for ultimately yeah i would encourage people to 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 google an image of a cult dragoon because it's a it's a very victorian era design it's very brutally elegant as opposed to sort of modern you know firearms it was very formidable looking but it had some some graceful lines to it as some of the older firearms of that period tended to tended to do but yeah really unwieldy not something that that you could easily carry around and the story set during the american civil war towards the end could be i didn't really pin down when it was the the thing about the civil war in arkansas is arkansas if arkansas is shaped basically like a square and if you drew a diagonal line from from the southwest up to the northeast the northwestern corner of Arkansas had a lot of pro-Union loyalties. So the war was largely settled in northwest Arkansas fairly early in the war. But after the war, it was a horrible place to be because you had a lot of, there wasn't a lot of law and order in that part of the country at that time because obviously every, all the able-bodied men were off fighting. So it was a it was a stark existence for those for the last couple of years of the war. So I suppose I envisioned the story taking place yeah towards the towards the latter half of the war. And we have the the grandmother and her grand, beloved grandson, and I think he called him the precious grandson at one point. And his dad's dead in the war, and uh, his mother, as, as I read it, went into the woods and something terrible happened yeah. to her Yeah, and I purposefully sort of left that ambiguous because I I don't have a you know, it would be easy to to think of this as as a as a werewolf story, but I never really en envisaged that the 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 yeah. the process that the grandson was going through as being a turning into a werewolf. My notion was more that this is a, a, a beast of some sort that just preys on human suffering. So the, the father, the child's father was killed in the war, as you said. The mother was killed by the, by the beast, ostensibly. And then the, the, the child was infected or, or marked or touched in some way by this, by this evil thing. Running in parallel to a war, it just seemed to me like sort of an opportunistic evil force that just preys on human suffering. And it's hard to imagine a person going through more suffering than this poor grandmother went through. You know, she's, she's seen two generations of her family wiped out in the, you know, in a matter of months. And then she has to, uh, towards the end, she has to actually kill the grandson to save him from these strangers coming in and doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's as dark as, as dark could be. I think it, at some point in, in the writing of it, the metaphor of this running in parallel with the war. So if you think about a grandmother killing a grandson, so, so two generations removed from her, and she's now forced to kill the grandson. At the same time, you had a civil war. If you figure 
America was founded in 1776. By 1860, you're dealing with the second generation of, of um, or third generation of, of Americans. So you've got a nation effectively having to, 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 to prosecute a war against its own grandchildren who had effectively turned against their nation. Well, here's in the confines of this small cabin, here's a grandmother forced to do the same thing to a grandchild who has is turning, you know, into something different or something, something evil. So I think there was a, on some level, maybe subconsciously, there was a there was a metaphor running through my mind in that sense. Absolutely. And, you know, when people read this story and they draw their own inferences from it. And so, yeah, I see that metaphor and, and it can be read as a, a simple, almost folk horror, supernatural tale whereby there's something evil lurking in the woods, just waiting for people at a moment of weakness that it can kind of infect them. And then, as you say, there's the metaphor, the, the almost, I don't want to say political, but, you know, historical metaphor, as you've just set out. And then there's the the, the human suffering. I mean, it could have even been written as, you know, that the, the mother and the father are dead. She's alone. She's 80 or so um, with the grandchild, the grandson, who's very precious to her. And he gets some kind of awful disease, you know, it, and, and that in itself would be a tragedy without any of the other levels. But there's at least three levels in there, I think. Yeah, it's 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 hard to imagine uh, that poor grandmother, you know, in this life going through anything worse than what she's, she's been through. And that's, I think really my, my intent at the beginning was not to write a, a fully fleshed story so much as a, as a scene, an image taking place in one setting of just abject despair, you know? And I think at, at the same time, I was trying to play with this notion of there's something coming that in the beginning you're focused on what is coming over the hill. What is she so concerned about coming? And then by the end, we know that, that she's got what's inside the cabin is, 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 is just as bad. So. And like, you know, in story structure, she has a, a dilemma, a difficult, and there's a time clock ticking down as well. So it's got the ingredients of a, of a well-crafted story there, I think. Thanks. Thanks. What else are you writing at the moment or recently? Yeah, I'm sad to say at the moment I'm not writing any fiction. The struggle, this may just be a this may just be an excuse for laziness. The struggle that I have is is to to write all day for a job and then try to shift gears and write creatively on the weekends or at night or something. But that said, there are legions of successful writers who have come before me who are able to make that shift. I'm just I don't seem to be as as good as that. I think my great hope is that that in retirement, uh, the, the fiction gene is going to kick back in and I'm going to write just for me for, you know, a good string of years. But at the moment, no, I'm not working on any fiction, sadly. I, I suspect that that's probably true because you probably could never now stop writing in some form. I, I, you know, it, it's in your blood now. It's, uh, so, so even if you stop 
writing speeches professionally, that may, be, as you say, that may be the time when the fiction comes up. What about reading? Do you get time to read anything? I, I do. Yeah, I tend to go. I tend to go older stuff. Sadly, I've had great fun reading reading your work, to be honest. But I tend to, if if left to my own devices, I tend to go old. So I'll I try to read um, Shirley Jackson. I love. I try to read Dracula once every two or three years, just because that that I think Dracula was the 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 novel that got me interested, not just in in reading horror, but but actually trying to to write it. And of course, you know the, the greats like Poe and others. In fact, now that you mention it, I distinctly recall before I wrote Dragoon, I was I had spent several months diving into Ambrose Bierce. Are you familiar with Ambrose? Oh yeah. Yeah. I am, I am. A very American Civil War kind of period as well. Exactly. And I think because Bierce was not only was he like a, a combination of Poe and Mark Twain because he was incredibly funny, but Bierce was a Civil War veteran. So uh, Ambrose Bierce is looked to not only by fans of of weird fiction, but by people who are interested in the Civil War because he wrote a, a handful, more than a handful of of short stories that were set in the Civil War. So, for instance, he had a story called Chickamauga, which was a which was a battle in the Civil War, and he describes amputee soldiers in the heat of battle crawling to a creek with their elbows to take their last drink of water. These horrific mm-hmm. scenes. But we look at these because they have a, a veracity to them because people know, well, Ambrose Bierce was at the Battle of Chickamauga. He saw this. So historians look to his writing as a really accurate um, depiction of what life in the Civil War was really like. So I, I remember now I had a professor named Tom Powers, who had suggested that I read Beers. And so I, I think I went on about a three-month jag of just reading Ambrose Beers, reading everything I could get my hands on. And I suspect that's the reason Dragoon was set in the Civil War, probably because I had Beers, Beers on the brain, as it were, for those, those months. One story that's requested that I do narrate is Currents at Owl Creek Bridge. I mean, it's been done by loads of people. If you go on YouTube or, yeah, you'll find various versions of that. But I will get round to that. I think he's he's really great. And, of course, a mysterious disappearance when he went to Mexico, didn't he? he never came back. What a perfect way for his life to end. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, he 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 almost coined the the twist ending to little short stories. Almost he, he was doing what the television series Twilight Zone in America did you know, generations later, but, uh, but yeah, for, for then his life to end in a massive question mark, he went to Mexico and was never seen again to report on the Mexican civil war. And he, and he, and he disappeared. Such so it's, it's a fitting end. I would suggest too, in a current, I mentioned the, the story Chickamauga. I mean, he has a ton of great stories, but occurrence at Owl Creek bridge is unquestionably the most famous story of his, but, you may want to take a look at Chickamauga too, because that's a, it's got a great, it's got a great twist to the ending that makes it really special. So the, the other uh, author that you, that we haven't mentioned is Nathaniel Hawthorne. And 
I, I recently mm. did Young Goodman Brown, and I don't know whether it's that, um, and that was New England, obviously, but I don't know whether it's that kind of rural American 19th century thing going on there. He possibly is 18th century, that's sorry, I'm not sure. But yeah, so when I, you know, inevitably when you read a story, you have associations spark off it. So I was thinking of, of all of those, those characters, really, when I was reading it. Sure, sure. Yeah, there's also a great, just to get a plug-in for, for Arkansas, there's a, an amazing writer that came out of Arkansas by the name of Charles Portis. And he's best known for his story, True Grit, which he wrote in the late 1960s. They, they subsequently made a couple of movies out of it. There was a famous John Wayne movie of True Grit. Yeah. And then in the, in the 2010s, I think the Coen brothers did, a, did another adaptation of that. Portis was primarily a humorist. His, he had five novels and they were just, four of them were absolutely hilarious. And then True Grit was, got, had the most commercial success but it was a really, a really poignant story about a young girl going to avenge the, the death of her father. And actually, now, as we talk about it, it's just occurred to me, but Maddie Ross, the main character in True Grit, a young girl, carried her father's Colt's Dragoon pistol. That just, that just yeah, occurred to me. So there's another. Yeah, it's strange. Yeah, that's, it? yeah that yeah. undoubtedly was, was in my mind as well when that, when that came about. Yeah. So this young girl lugging about a huge, heavy pistol. Four pound, yeah. Too small to really fire it effectively, but it had belonged to her father in the Civil War. Yeah. The, the other thing about the story was there's something about, I don't know if this is relevant, but it struck me that uh, it was traded for things, wasn't it? He, he traded it for a horse, which he traded it. The father who got the dragoon traded the, a horse, and then he, he got the horse for trading it for something else. I don't know if that, that is relevant or not. I don't know. You know, in that, in that time, his, his, he would not, this would not have been a family that had disposable income. So I think the only way that, that well, I think I may have referenced in the, in the story that a lot of soldiers from Arkansas went to fight in the war, having little more than a pike to, to go to war with and, and no shoes. So this would not have been a family that had the ability to just outright purchase a pistol like that. So he would have had to have traded into it in some way or another. I guess talking about that's making me think of Cormac McCarthy and some of his very grim stories like Blood Meridian and yeah. oh, that, that yeah. trilogy there. That's a bit further south than Arkansas, though. So my American geography is yeah. shaky. Well, it's close. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the West Texas, uh, it's, it's relatively close. Yeah. There's something in Southern, Southern fiction that has a propensity to go dark. And I don't know, I don't know what the, I don't know what the reason is for that, but, uh, but some of the finest work to come out of the South deals with really sort of tough subject matter. Because, of course, there's the whole genre of uh, Southern Gothic, isn't there, uh, which yeah. we haven't even got into. And I, I, uh, that's an area that I'm going to look into in the future. Yeah, yeah. So we, we've learned that how you got into your unusual profession. You've been all around the world, and we're hoping that you get a bit more time to write later on. Is there any kind of links or anything you'd like me to post that so that people can make contact with you or read more of your work or... Or anything like that. Oh, 
Uh, well, that's awfully nice. I'm on Facebook. My name is Dwayne Hayes. I don't maintain a lot of social media, to be honest, but I am on Facebook, so I'm pretty easy to find in that regard. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy for, for people to read that. I, I find that people that tend to be very appreciative of writers and will reach out, you know, even even if it's just to say, really enjoyed your work, and that's always nice to hear. Of course, then you get somebody who doesn't. We we all have that, and that's just life. Oh, believe me, one of the one of the real tools that I took away from from getting a graduate degree in creative writing was learning how to to deal with constructive criticism, and even criticism that sometimes you don't think is particularly constructive. But that was uh, that was a real you know because as a professional. As a speechwriter, I tend to work sort of in isolation. I'm working with one person, maybe a small team of people, policy advisors or whatnot, on a speech. But when you when you write fiction and then you sit down at a table with a bunch of peers and a and an, and an instructor who is uh, him or herself invariably an accomplished writer, or they wouldn't be teaching a class. And you just you know, lift the hood on the story and start pulling wires out. It can be a it can be a horrific experience until you sort of give yourself over to it and and just assume, okay, everybody is in this for the right reason. We're all trying to make each other's stories better. Once you if you can put your ego aside and your your natural sort of self-defense mechanism and say, you know what? These are some of these are really good points. And, and I think I will go back and redo that in, in whatever way they're suggesting. Once you can cross that psychological barrier, it becomes really helpful. And I, I, think, I, I, I think I will forever look back at the, at the two years that I spent just focusing on reading good literature, talking about literature, and writing and then talking about writing and getting feedback on it. Best two years of my life. Just absolute fun across the board. I think Neil Gaiman said about, he said, usually when people find something wrong with your work, you should listen to them because there is something that's glitched that they've, they, they, they know it's wrong, but he said, don't, don't take their advice on how to fix it. That's your job, how you fix it. But actually do mm-hmm. absolutely listen to them if they say this didn't quite work right. There we are. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you know, you're, you're writing to, to speak to people. And if, if the message that you're trying to put in the writing, it has an unintended consequence or just doesn't. I, I, I remember one story that I wrote in, in the graduate program at Dartmouth. And it was a story that had, had a twist ending to it. And there were maybe 10, 10 other people in the class. and the only thing that I remember now from that sort of roundtable where we all chopped this story up was that one of the 10 people said they saw the ending coming. And that just broke my heart because, you know, if you're going to put a twist ending in a story, you want it to be a real twist. So the fact that, you know, one tenth of the audience saw the ending coming just crushed me. But, you know, you can't please everybody you can't you know 100 percent of the time but still that, that kind of stuff is great to know because you, you you have to you have to be willing to you know even in in the speech writing it's the same thing there's you know we'll get feedback from people that you have to make a measured decision 
does does this feedback ring true with me? You know, if if I weren't the author, would I see this point as being valid? And, and if you do, you just have to you just have to get past yourself and and think about okay, well, how do I rectify this? There's there's actually a whole writing program on that in itself, isn't it? You know, the discernment because some people are going to say, oh, I saw that I saw that twist coming. That that they're making a point for themselves it maybe they did maybe they didn't but yeah you've got to have that discernment and you've got to have a, a relatively thick skin to to uh, not be offended by when people don't like your stuff it just that is one of the one of the penalties isn't it yeah well i think in in that case in particular i seem to recall the, the professor a guy by the name of alan lulchuk saying well look None of us didn't. Yeah, you know, none of us didn't see it coming. So, what do you want? <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's a great answer. Okay, and the the final thing I want to say is, I would really like to learn to speak like you. <laughs> it's so melodious. I would really love to. I might uh, listen to this and practice. So, if people see me kind of mouthing, <laughs> I, Tony, I think I think you did. A, I think you did a great job, and I, you've you've done an American accent and other stories as well. And I think you do a great job. Yeah, but I want to do a southern accent. I want to do a, a lovely, gentle southern accent like yours. Well, you know, having lived outside, I, I left Arkansas in in two thousand three, so I've now spent a good, you know, nearly twenty years not in Arkansas, but both when I was living in Arizona and in New England every day of my life somebody when i would open my mouth would say where are you from because they would detect my accent somehow i don't know how this is possible but i feel like my southern accent has gotten more concentrated the farther away i am from arkansas i don't know how that's possible but uh you know i used to fly home to from from new england or from arizona fly home back to arkansas and when i would hear the accent again after you know a year or more of not hearing it I, I I could hear it with new ears, um, you know, because growing up in it, it, that's just the way people talk. But when you can hear it as an outsider, it's really, it's, it's quite entertaining. Yeah, absolutely. It's good. It's good. Anyway, okay, that's that's great, Duane. Um, thank you for coming on and thank you for keeping me entertained and I'm sure everybody else as well. So, yeah, I'll put this up on the podcast and do a version on the YouTube channel and uh, then look out for what people say because that's always a, a, a rewarding part when people enjoy your work yeah tony it's been such a pleasure and I, and seriously i've become such a fan i've i can't tell you how many hours i've spent just w on youtube just letting the stories run one after another it's just it's a fascinating collection that you're that you're putting together it makes it worthwhile to me as well that people do that i get lots of things oh you know i was woodworking or hiking or driving a truck somewhere and they've been listening to it. And that, that make, that's really great. I love that. that yeah. That's why I do it. Yeah. Well, it's such an interesting format to do it too, because, you know, YouTube has really become not only our new television, but it's our new radio too. You know, I, I sort of think of it as a, as a, as a radio program playing that uh, like listening in, in the States, we'd listen to like national public radio or something with, with, political talk shows or news of the day or whatever, but um, it's, it's fun to be able to just turn on a channel like yours that has a, a specific kind of content that appeals to you and just let it run. It's you're, you're doing a, you're doing a great service with your channel. Yeah. You, YouTube really is, it's, it is the new TV. It absolutely is. Yeah. I spend hours on it.
watching all kinds of things, you know? You know, I never did until I moved to Saudi Arabia because our our options for TV here are so limited because most of the, the, the channels here obviously are in Arabic, which which don't don't do anything for me. So YouTube really allows me even, you know, like watching the nightly news from the United States. I get it on YouTube the next day. So uh, it's YouTube's really been a lifeline. OK, great. So uh, I'll, uh, I'm going to stop recording now. And I did, and it all sounded a bit abrupt, so I, I've added this little bit at the end. So that was Dwayne Hayes, and I'm going to put a link to his Facebook page in the show notes. And what an interesting guy, eh? What an interesting life, and really thoughtful about things. I hope he really does get back to writing more, because he's going to have a full life of things to write about that would be really interesting to people. So that was it. That's it for this week. Tune in again soon and there'll be even more stories for you. I hope you're all well. Good night. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?